You know, um, I'm always a bit confused by some of the marquees that are placed outside of churches and always kind of interested in the, what they say and how they express it and sometimes how they get it wrong, like these guys. Don't let worry kill you off. Let the church help. <laughs> or, or, or how about this sign? Now, now it's a good time to visit our, now's a good time to visit our pastors on vacation. You know, I, I took a four-month sabbatical a couple years ago, and I'm so thankful we didn't have a marquee out in front. I wonder what they would have put on it. Or this. Do you know what hell is? Come here, our preacher. <laughs> they might have put that. Or this, whoever stole our AC units, keep one. It's hot where you're going. That's terrible. That is terrible stuff. No grace at that church. You don't want to go there. You know, it's, uh, it's so true that, you know, those marquees can tell a lot about churches and towns. And there was a, a situation that happened some years ago where a church got kind of in a, a turf war with another church, Catholics, and the Presbyterians got in a little sign war. And the Catholics said, all dogs go to heaven. The Presbyterians got involved, and here's what they said, only humans go to heaven. Read the Bible. Well, the Catholics had to respond back, and they say, God loves all of his creation, dogs included. Presbyterians, of course, had a rebuttal. Dogs don't have souls. This is not open for debate, which the Catholics replied to. Catholic dogs go to heaven. <laughs> Presbyterian dogs can go talk to their pastor. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. So the Presbyterians say, converting to Catholicism does not magically grant your dog a soul. <laughs> the Catholics say, free dog souls with conversion. <laughs> oh, man. Dogs are animals. They aren't any, there, there aren't any rocks in heaven either. I love what the Catholics have to say. All rocks go to heaven. <laughs> there you go, right? But what that shows is just the, the, the truth that happens with a, and amongst churches, amongst congregations. Sometimes it's silly division. Sometimes it's true division. But I think most of us in this room would say that we've got a, a problem, a problem of disunity, a problem of disunity that faces the bride of Christ where there are too many churches out doing their own thing, branding their own name, rather than searching after an allegiance to Jesus Christ. You know, that didn't always be that way, though. When the early church had started, and you can investigate it in the book of Acts, a New Testament book, just titled Acts of the Apostles, what the apostles did, the church grew rapidly. And uh, if you don't like large churches, man, you would have had a problem with the early church of Jerusalem. They were about 12,000 in size as they met around the temple courts. They didn't have a building that they met in. They just met outside of the temple courts. They weren't allowed inside. And they met there, and that church just grew, and it prospered. And then as the, 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 the mission and the message of Jesus was carried outside of the walls of Jerusalem, churches started to establish themselves in areas like Turkey, what we know now as Turkey, and Greece, and, and in Italy, and, and the, in the known world at that time, little churches, pockets of Christians were being formed. Now, they didn't have any organization that tied them together. The apostles would go and teach, and guys like the apostle Paul and, and Peter, they'd go out to those churches and communicate the message of Jesus. But then those apostles died, and the churches were kind of left to do their own thing, and they got into councils, councils that could help them form creeds and help them form doctrines and just kind of stay connected to the teachings of Jesus. And then it was about, you know, 300 AD or so. I know you're like, is this a history lesson right now? that uh, the Romans had decided that we're, gonna, we're not going to outlaw Christianity anymore. We're actually we're going to embrace Christianity. And they did so, and there was a pocket of Christians in the city of Rome that said, we want in on that. And that became known as the Roman Catholic Church. And that vein of mainstream Christianity continued on as the church tried to collectively come together. That was the original intent of the universal Catholic Church, to get everybody together and on the same page. 
but that never works. When you try to bring people under one banner or one creed or maybe under a person rather than Christ, that's, that's a very tough, challenging act. And so then from there, just like clockwork, one right after the other, people splintered off from the church and they became their own denomination. They gave their own creed and they came up with their own doctrines and their own traditions. And then there was another denomination and then another denomination and another denomination and another denomination do you know on page right now, there are more than 34,000 denominations in the world? 34,000 denominations in the world. And we just haven't been able to get on page since. We've never been able to kind of collectively come together and, and truly be this church that, that I think God inspires us, wants us to be, and that centralized bride that, that is uh, allegiant to who Christ is. You might be wondering about Bethany, like what denomination are we? You might be here for the first time kicking the tires around a little bit and you're trying to figure out like who are these guys, where do they come from? Uh, we're, we're not affiliated with a denomination. We are what you'd call a non-denominational church. Uh, we come from what's called the Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening rather of the United States. A, a couple hundred years ago there's a giant revival that took place around the United States and people were giving their life to Christ left and right and it was some denominational preachers that got together and said, you know what? We feel really restricted by the chains of a hierarchy of our denomination. We want to break free from that, and we want to get back, and we want to restore the New Testament church the best way we can in the United States. And they called that movement the Restoration Movement, and that's the movement that we come out of. We're a part of that Restoration Movement. You know, Bethany Christian Church is almost 200 years old, and we come right out of that Second Great Awakening. And I'm not saying that we're a perfect church. We're certainly not a perfect church. I'm not saying that we have it all right. We, we certainly don't have it right. But friends, we strive as we try to get out from under a hierarchy to get back to the New Testament teachings and, and try to dig ourselves and establish ourselves with the foundation of the scriptures rather than a creed or on the foundations of men. And that's not always a perfect result that we get, but those are our, our, our roots. And I just want to remind all of us in this room here today, before you start feeling like maybe a little puffed up, because of the name of the church that's located out there on the marquee, that we are not the only Christians, but we are Christians only. You know, that comes from that movement, the Restoration Movement, a couple hundred years ago, where they said, listen, just because you're not a part of the denomination doesn't make you better than anybody else. We're not the only Christians, but we are Christians only. And every church is going to have a different methodology. They're going to do ministry different. The church across the street is going to do ministry different than we are. The church down the road is going to do ministry different than we are. They're going to lay out different programs. And that leads us to one of our, our core beliefs around here about the church, the, the global church. And that is, we believe that the church is bigger than Bethany. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than our namesake. It's bigger than what we're trying to accomplish in southern Indiana and even around the world. And you know what? For a long time, I had a problem with that. I looked at the city of Vincennes, and I found out there were 49 churches in the city of Vincennes. Hey, Washington, you haven't fared much better. There's 53 churches in the town of Washington. Last I knew, Vincennes was bigger than Washington, right? Maybe God's needed more in Washington than it is in Vincennes. I don't know. Now, I didn't go to, to school to become a mathematician, but I added it up to be 102 churches amongst the two different communities. 102 churches, and I wondered oftentimes, boy, all that does is represent division, doesn't it? I mean, if the outsider's looking in, wouldn't they just say something like, can't they just get along? Can't they just kind of centralize and get their act together and get into the banner of Christ? I mean, why all these churches and these little towns? I used to think that way. And I think Christ came in and convicted me. He convicted me that every single church has a part to play. 
We're members of his body as congregations, in a sense. We all have a different personality in that regard. I'm not talking about the person in the pulpit. I'm talking about the church itself. It all has a different vibe. And they all have a different calling to accomplish Christ's mission. And I think why you can get a big head at Bethany, maybe because God is using us right now to do some big things, don't ever forget that we're not the only Christians. We're just Christians only. And God has called us and all these 102 churches in our two communities to reach out and to, to meet his mission, to do his mission. What's that mission? Matthew chapter 28. Jesus titles it out, lays it out for us. It's on the screen there in front of you. It says, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always until the very end of the age. You know, you might read that and you might think, well, here's what the church is called to do. The church is called to go. That's what Jesus says. The church is called to go. We need to go. And we need to get out of these four walls at all times. Or you might have come from a church that said no. We see the principle of Jesus laying down that we need to make disciples. And we need to have a great discipleship program. A disciple and mentoring and disciple making program. Others, and we've even been accused of this emphasize baptize that's what the church is called to just just baptize people get people wet and get them converted over to christianity other churches would say no no we're a teaching church we're founded on the principles of teaching but that's not at all what jesus was getting at jesus was actually calling us to go and do something that was rather impressive those other things are the what we're to do or how we're to do them rather not the what we're to do what are we to do as a church we're to embrace the kingdom of God, and we are to expand the kingdom of God. Did you catch that? That's what Jesus is calling us to, to embrace the kingdom of God and to expand the kingdom of God. Every congregation is called to embrace and to expand the kingdom. Look at this, the kingdom. What does it mean to be the kingdom of God? King means to put yourself under the sovereign rule of a leader, of a king. That's the king of kings, Jesus. And every church should try to get people to embrace the sovereign rule of Christ in their life. What does dumb mean? Domain, territory. We're taking territory for Christ. Isn't that what Jesus was teaching when he started off with the most important side of it? Go and make disciples where? Of all nations. You go and you take some territory. You try to have people embrace me as their sovereign king, and you go and you, you try to take as much territory for God as you possibly can. You know the book of Acts, those early Christians, that's how they looked at it. You know, that whole book is about how they grew the kingdom of God, not just in Jerusalem, but in the known world at the time. And they did it with great boldness. They didn't hold back from it. And it tells us that the church just exploded in growth, and people fell under the sovereignness, the sovereignty of the king of kings, and they gained territory for God's kingdom. Here's how the last verse of the book of Acts ends. It says, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, with all boldness and without hindrance, the church grew. Do you see a couple things there? Number one, they were proclaiming the kingdom of God. They, they weren't spouting a church name. They weren't spouting a creed. They weren't saying that their preacher was better than the other preacher. They weren't saying their program was better than the other. They weren't saying their building was bigger than their. No, they were proclaiming the kingdom of God. Embrace the sovereignty, the rule of God, and expand the kingdom's territory. And then how did they do this? How did they do it? With boldness and without hindrance, they did it. I love that. They did it boldly. 
And they did it in a way that was unstoppable. Nothing could stop them. They weren't afraid of the message of Jesus because it was a truthful message. And they expanded and they embraced God's kingdom. Now, here's the rub. Here's the rub. A couple things. Number one, I think churches, including Bethany, have just forgotten to be bold and unstoppable. That's part of the rub. We focus on ourselves. We've looked internally. Others have looked internally as a church, and we've forgotten to take territory for the kingdom. We forgot to try to have people embrace God as their sovereign ruler and try to take territory for God's kingdom. Here's the second rub. 34,000 different denominations, 37 million different churches around the world. And you know what would be great if we all had a the real goal of lifting Jesus high and proclaiming his name and stretching the kingdom out, wouldn't it? But we don't. Friends, even here at Bethany, we're guilty of this, and we're even tempted to do this, and that's to make a name for ourselves. It's real easy to get impressed with what you're doing, to get impressed with the things that God's doing within this little community right now. And and the rub is 37 million other congregations are tempted with the very same thing. And instead of focusing on Christ and pledging our allegiance to Jesus, we sometimes pledge our allegiance to the label that exists on the front of the building. That temptation exists for us, and that's why we believe that our primary allegiance is to Christ and His cause, not to a congregational name. But can I tell you, that can be really difficult. I mean, this is like one of the hardest challenges for, I think, someone that is in absolutely love with Christ and his church. And what I'm discovering is in church leadership that there are a lot of people, men and women, that are loving the, the church. They surrender to the church. They give their time and talents and treasure to the church. But sadly, they've never surrendered to Christ. The church has become their idol. And I, I know this, and you maybe can know this about yourself. A little litmus test when, when programs start to change. When ministers start becoming rearranged or leave and another one comes, who are you really connected to? Christ or connected to that church? Whose cause are you for? Christ's cause or just the mission or the cause of the church that meets here locally? You know, what I'm seeing more and more are people that have a greater connection to the church than they have to the church, the big church. They love the place, they love the people more than they love the central person, and that is Jesus. And friends, that's not where we're called to be, Uh, to set the building up as an idol or to set the pastor up on a pedestal to become uh, the reason why you're here. There's been a growing movement in the last five years amongst churches to have this kind of sermon series that's called I Love the Church. Maybe you've been a part of that. You've seen people with the, the shirt that says, I love my church. Can I just kind of say this bluntly? It's not my church, and it's not your church. It's God's church. It's Christ's church. I love Christ's church. And I get what they're trying to say, that the people and the place that they go to is very important to them, and it means a great deal to them, and and that has even laid and implemented faith into their life. And many of you said that about this church. Like, I love my church. I love Bethany. And I think that's great. I love when people say that because I know they have a connection to this place, and, and I know they mean well, but can I just, let me just be like a prophet. I'm not a prophet, but let me just warn you for a moment, shall I? Because I think it's easy just to slip into this mindset. When you have a church that is getting larger and more influential, and I just want to remind you that that no one but God has put this congregation into a position of influence. No one but God. God is the one who's given us power. 
Friends, it's not program, it's not preacher, it's not a building project. And our allegiance is to Christ. I don't want you to ever forget what gives places like this power. It's not you and it's not me. It's God. This last week I was reminded when we were like relocating our church offices many years ago. Um, I see Bill Miller, who was our children's pastor years ago here, and he can remember when we moved out of our old parsonage and we made our way up to the old balcony. You remember this? And we kind of turned into our offices like horse stables, kind of, is what it felt like. And we had to move all of our stuff up the stairs and up another flight of stairs. And I had filled this Rubbermaid tub, those big tubs uh, with books. And it got really heavy, and I was starting to haul it up the stairs, and my kids were there to help. Now, they were four years old at the time, and, and I was, I, yeah, not much help, right? And so I'm, I'm, I'm dragging it up the stairs, and one of them comes, and he starts to help me push. Like, I'm going to help Dad out. It looks like he's really struggling. And we get to a landing spot, and I decide, I'm just going to take some books out. This thing is way too heavy to drag up these steps. So I take some books out, and I lay it aside, and that's when my kid yells at me. and says, Dad, get out of my way! And then I realized... He thought I was in his way because he thought he was the one pushing the tub up the stairs. Yeah. So I just sat back and I said, go for it. And he grunted and he strained and he pushed and he tried to pull and that box did not move one inch. And I just sat back and I just shook my head and kind of laughed in, in, in almost disgust. Friends, it makes me wonder how many times God looks down on us when we're trying to push this box and we think we've done the heavy lifting and he just shakes his head at us. You see, he's the power. He's the one that gives us the push. He's the one that creates the growth, not us. And the only reason this congregation has experienced great growth and influence in our communities is because God's, God's strength, not our own. Never forget that, that God's the one who supplies the power. And without God, friends, Bethany Christian Church is nothing more than an, just a, an elaborate social club Listen, this isn't my church, it's not your church, this is God's church. Let me tell you why I love the church. Not, not Bethany, just the church. The, the bigness, the 37 million congregations, the church. I love the church because of its founder. I love the church because of its founder. That founder is Jesus Christ himself. You know, I've got this silly gumball machine in my office. Uh, it was my grandfather's. He used to sit in his office, he was a full-time minister for decades. In August, he celebrates 70 years of full-time ministry. He used to sit there in his office, and now he's kind of like giving it to me. And now it sits in my office. It's a silly gumball machine. Like if you were to have that machine, you would have had it out at a yard sale with five bucks on it. And you would have gotten two for it. Because it's not a collector's item. It's absolutely worthless, but it has a great deal of meaning and value to me. It's not because of what it is. It's because of who it belonged to. Friends, I love the church not because of what it is. Man, we are a mess at our best, but because of who, whose it is, the founder, Jesus Christ. And friends, with your allegiance is to Christ rather than to the cause of the church, you're going to love the church because Jesus loved the church. Let me tell you how much he loved it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. There is not a single congregation in the world that can say they laid the foundation to their own congregation. Now, Scripture tells us otherwise. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the foundation, 
to any Bible-believing congregation, and we're built upon him. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 on the screen. It says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. By the way, the church isn't brick and mortar. The church is flesh and blood. The church is you. And we're to be offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. We are a chosen and precious cornerstone. Can I tell you, though, about the cornerstone? If a building is separated from its foundation, it will crumble and it will, it will collapse. The second reason I love the church is this. Jesus loved the church. I love Jesus, and Jesus loved the church. I'm going to love the things that Jesus loved. Jesus had a giant investment into the church. He's the founder, but he's also the principal investor. He invested his life. He invested his blood. He invested all that he had for you and me. Friends, I'll tell you something. He is madly in love with the church. And one of the metaphors that Jesus used oftentimes to explain this deep love and this great love affair that he has with with these congregations, these 37 million of us, is that he is the, the bridegroom and we are his bride. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 with me. It's a page 949 in the chair rack in front of you. And here's what it says. I'm going to just go quickly through it. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her men. Just real quick, uh, if you're a husband in the room, it says that we are to be sacrificial for our ladies. That's how Jesus was for the church. That's how we are to be for them. It's not about you and the relationship. It's about her. You get that right, she'll respect you, and you'll... And you'll love her. And those are the two things that are needed for a great marriage, respect and love. Verse 26, to make her holy. Jesus gave himself up to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water and through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. This leads to another belief statement. Here's what it is. We believe that the church has faults, but Jesus has redeemed the church. Like, look, if you've been in the church any time, you, you've recognized that we got problems, plural, right? Because we have people, plural. And people got problems. I got problems. You got problems. I've come into this room with problems. When you walk into a house after from being outside, you're going to have some dirt on your shoes. And people have walked in here with messy lives. And there's going to be some sin in this room. And any believer that thinks a church should have purity without sin amongst it, you're crazy. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. Who is it? It's the sick. And that's who we're here to minister to. And friends, just so you're aware, I'm sick. And so are you. And this congregation is filled with sick people that need rescued and healed spiritually by a wonderful, great physician. And we've got our faults. They're plural. Let me just express to you some of the faults just in the United States churches. Leadership Magazine pulled 1,000 ministers, 1,000 ministers, and it indicated that 12% of those ministers have committed adultery. 23% of them admitted that they had done something they considered sexually inappropriate. That's 35% of ministers who say, I've done something that was sexually inappropriate, or I've had an affair. You know, one of the reasons I think that the church is discarded by the rest of the world is just we don't live up to the great standards of God, and they're right, Right? Hypocrisy? You, yeah, it's there. I mean, they can look at maybe the Catholic Church and the abuse scandal. They can look at maybe a TV preacher. They can look at like a, a place like Bethany and say, they're just trying to make a name for themselves. They're trying to franchise themselves from town to town. And I'll tell you what, you look inside of the church and you say, the divorce rate is just the same as it is amongst the world. Cohabitation is just the same as it is around 
the world. Unwholesome talk, lawsuits, drug use, alcoholism. That's not uncommon in churches. It's just the same, actually. We need to be reminded it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. And anytime anybody wants to tell you that they're hypocrites in the church, you just need to acknowledge it and say there are. I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. I'm a beggar who has found the bread. And you need to invite them in and welcome them in. Uh, one sin or a million. We all need a Savior. That's why we believe the church has faults, but Jesus has and will redeem the church. Isn't that what Ephesians 5 said? That he's come and he's washed us clean. He's took away the wrinkle and the defect, and he's the one that has made us a radiant bride. Now, listen, I know I'm not perfect, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ, God looks at me and us and his church and says, you can't hold me back from loving them. You know, my children, I've got great expectations for them, and they don't meet those expectations all the time. That doesn't that doesn't make me as a father stop loving them. And we, God has these great expectations and standards for us as a church. And we don't meet all those expectations. But that doesn't stop God from loving us in a deep and profound love. He has clothed us in white. He has taken away the blemishes and the wrinkles and the defects. And he has made us pure and righteous. Not us. He has done that for us. Which leads kind of to our, our last we believe statement. We believe Jesus is coming again to receive his bride. That... That Christ, that groom, who loves that bride, will have this great meeting, this great wedding. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians, and there's just to the right of Ephesians. It tells us about this moment. If, if you're someone that has maybe come from a Baptist background, you'll recognize this as a one-word idea, and that's called the rapture. Anybody know about the rapture? It's not a biblical word, but yet it is a word that's been applied to this. It's about where the church and God meet together, the, the bridegroom and the groom meet together. Verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will come down from the heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet call of God, and the dead will rise in Christ will rise first. I always wanted to know what that's going to look like. Uh, Bethany used to be uh, in Montgomery, and there was a a cemetery that was around it, and I always wondered, if Christ returned, what's this going to look like? I don't know. I don't have a clue. Verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And the bridegroom will receive his bride with all of our imperfections, with our crazy mess, he welcomes us because he sees us and he has cleansed us and we are spotless and we are perfect. Why? Because the groom often looks for the positive traits of the bride, not the negative traits. That's what a loving groom does. Last night we were at an awesome wedding. My wife and I were just in tears for this couple. We just loved them so much and it was just such a joyous occasion for them. It reminded me of a wedding I had done several years ago out on this landscaped hill, uh, kind of in the, the countryside here just south of Washington and it's one of those just magical summer nights, you know, like where the weather's just pristine, perfect. You don't get those very often, right? But it was one of those. And the sun was about ready to set. There was no candles. There was no music. There were no chairs. It was just groom and bride and me, the preacher, and just a collection of family and friends, close family and friends. They were dressed to the nines, though. That didn't stop them. And there the groom and I, we, we sat, we waited. We stood and waited for 
for, for the bride to come, and we couldn't see her because the crowd had kind of bunched up. They just didn't get into rows. They just kind of standing together, and she kind of made her way out the house and kind of around a berm. We couldn't see her, and then she started to climb this little hill, and there, there she was as the crowd parted, and, and it got silent, and then all you could hear is sobbing. She was crying. Like, she wasn't crying because she was nervous. She was crying because she was overjoyed. She saw her groom, and the groom started to cry, and they had this moment together, and, and then as she started to cry... Things started to get really bad really quick. <laughs> like, it, she started to look like she was a painting that was left out in the rain for a while. And you had all these, like, well-meaning women grabbing in their purses for Kleenexes. And, and she's just trying to wipe away this mess. But with every wipe, it got worse. And she was starting to look like a football player with all the mascara under her eyes. You know? It was like a train wreck coming down the aisle, man. And people just didn't know what to do. And she finally makes her way up as she's sobbing to her groom. And I love what, this is a great moment. He's standing there and, and he takes his, his tie out from his vest. He starts to mop away her tears and wipe away the mascara. And gets her back in order the best he can. And she calms down. She's no longer nervous. And they're kind of holding each other and embracing each other and looking at each other. She recognizes, she recognizes that there's no fear with the groom. That he sees, he sees the best in her. And he loves her internally, not just externally. Friends, you know the very first thing the Bible says is going to happen when the church meets the groom in heaven, when the bride and the groom have this wedding supper of sorts? It says that Christ will wipe away every tear from the bride's eye. I assume we'll be crying not because we're nervous, not because we're sad, but because we're overjoyed that someone so perfect like God would welcome us into his presence. Because this is an island of misfits, a painting that looks like it's been left in the rain. It's a distorted picture of what it should be. And yet God says, I have redeemed you, I have cleansed you, I have made you holy I welcome you into my presence. Friends, today, if you want to be included into this island of misfits, not Bethany, we're just a small part of it. But this train wreck called the church, this bride that is marching ahead to meet the groom, but is incomplete and, and is not perfect. If you want to be, a, listen, if, you want to, if you've recognized that in your own life and you just want to be a part of others that recognize it too, that we need a Savior because we got sin, the Bible tells us how, how to get there. In Galatians chapter 3, it says this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. You're going to have to have some faith. You know what faith is? Faith is taking an action step. Oh, belief is something. Everybody has a belief. Faith is acting out on that belief, see. So you have to have an action step. For all who were baptized, that's a good action step. And for many in this room, it was the first action step of your belief. You put faith into motion when you were baptized into Christ. You clothed yourself with Christ. He gave you a new garment. It goes on to say, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all, and now let's just say this underlined word, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Friends, I encourage you today to be baptized into Christ. And you go, well, here you go again. Matthew 28, you focused not on the go and make disciples, gain territory, you focused on the baptism. No, 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 we're, we're making disciples. 
We're expanding and embracing the kingdom. The how to be a part of this thing called the church is to come and to be baptized into Christ and be one with Christ and be one together in this. Friends, when you do that, you're not pledging allegiance to Bethany. You're not pledging allegiance to become a partner here or a member here. You're pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ himself. And you're becoming a member of not this church, but of his church, the bride, something even greater and better. And let me just remind you about the in Christ statement that is on the screen. Those who are in Christ, one in Christ. You know what Paul's really getting at? He's saying there is no American or Mexican in Christ. There's no Republican or Democrat. There's no citizen or immigrant, black or white, Presbyterian or Pentecostal, Hoosier or Boilermaker. There's no rich or poor. There's no blue or white collar, young or old. There's no single or married or doctorate or dropout or CEO or intern. There's no insider or outsider. Why? We are all one in Jesus Christ. We are his church. We are his bride. And friends, he is waiting for you to come to the altar and meet with him.